The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Welcome to the Ask Harry podcast. This is Harry Margolis, and this is the podcast where we interview experts on all aspects of estate planning. In this episode, I spoke with attorney Joe Imbriani of the firm of Taylor, Ganson, and Perrin about the responsibilities and duties of trustees. Joe, thank, thank you for joining me today. I wonder if we could start by you explaining what is a trust and what, the, what a trustee is. Well, the easiest way to understand what a trust is is to compare it to something you're more familiar with. People are very familiar with corporations. So a corporation is a separate legal entity, as a trust is a separate legal entity. A corporation is created when articles of organization are filed with the Secretary of State, so it creates the entity. A trust is created when somebody executes a trust document. So now you have the separate legal entity. Then you look at the operations. The operations of a corporation, it's the employees that make the widgets or perform the service, whereas on the trust side, it's the trustees that do the business of the trust. The employees make those widgets for the benefit of the owners of the corporation. The owners of a corporation, of course, are the shareholders, whereas the trustees operate the trust, which is managing the trust property, for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So if you understand what a corporation is, it's pretty easy to translate that into an understanding of what a trust is and what a trustee is. So the trustee is the person, and often there are multiple trustees, that are responsible whatever the trust does. So you said that a corporation, have, you have to file the articles of incorporation with the Secretary of State. Do you got to file the trust with anybody? No, absolutely not. So you can keep it totally private? It depends upon the jurisdiction. Okay. In some jurisdictions, you're allowed to have silent trusts. In other jurisdictions, you would be obligated to provide a copy of that to the beneficiaries. However, the general public does not see that. Okay, so... Um, so you said the, trust, the trustee carries out the terms of the trust, and uh, what exactly, what are, the, what are the, uh, the various duties of the trustee? Well, the trustee's responsibilities fall into four separate categories, in my opinion. First is legal. They have to understand what they can do, can't do, should do, shouldn't do. The next is tax. The trustees have to understand the implications of actions and inactions from the tax perspective. Of course, they have to understand the investments. Trust could be invested, could have an investment portfolio. It could have real estate, could have life insurance. But whatever the investment of the trust is, the trustees have to be capable of understanding that investment and how to properly benefit their beneficiaries. Lastly, and some of the most difficult decisions, are distribution decisions. If you have a trust which is granted the trustees latitude in making distribution decisions. How does the trustee go about making that decision? Has the trustee established a mechanism for the proper decision making? So, so why don't we go through all four of those areas? So starting with legal, you said that a trust has to uh, follow various legal terms, and I guess the terms of the, the trust. Could, could you expand on, the, on that a bit? Certainly. There are things that the trustee is legally obligated to do and in many jurisdictions, this would provide, uh, for example, providing notice to beneficiaries 
And that might be as a result of the trust becoming irrevocable, a new trustee coming into place. Some jurisdictions require notice on an annual basis regardless. But the trustee's actions from a legal perspective always have to be in the best interest of the beneficiaries. That's paramount throughout. The trustee also has to understand from a legal perspective what they can do and can't do. Because if the trust has not granted the trustee the right to do something, the trustee has to go to court and ask permission, which is rather inefficient. So you want to grant your trustees the rights to do various things so they don't have to waste the trust property to go to court. Now, I know people talk a lot about trustees having a fiduciary duty to the beneficiaries. What, what does that mean? Well, it means you have an obligation to act in their best interest. And this gets to one of the things that the trustees can't do. The trustees can't look out for themselves. They have to look out for the beneficiaries. The trust is not of the trustee. It is by the creator of the trust, often called the grantor or the donor. And it is for the beneficiaries of the trust. It's not for the trustees. It's for the beneficiaries. So the trustees always have to act in the best interest of the beneficiaries. And acting in a self-dealing manner would often contradict the best interest of the beneficiaries. So, so my understanding has always been that as a fiduciary, um, kind of the onus is on you to prove that you're doing the right thing by, by, on behalf of the beneficiaries. Yes. Almost and, the presumptions against you. And as we'll discuss a little bit later, the trustees face personal liability if they fail to act as they should. So there's a pretty high, high level of responsibility in being a trustee. Yeah. So, um, so turning to investments, what are, what are the standards uh, in terms of managing investments for trustees? Well, we have uh, a variety of standards. Now we look at the overall trust in itself in a total return basis. But the trustees have to evaluate the circumstances of the beneficiaries. Again, the trust is for the beneficiaries. So the trustees have to determine what the appropriate investments are. Often that means evaluating the cash flow needs of the beneficiaries. You have to, cons have to consider how long your investment horizon is. Are these trusts for young children that are not likely to be touched until they reach college age? Well, in that case, your investment horizon is much longer than this is a trust for a retired person who needs the income right away. You also have to evaluate the appropriate risk that the trustees can accept in, in investing. Well, if it's a trust for a younger person that has great, a great deal of earning potential, you can certainly take greater risk than you could with a retiree or with a young child. What if a beneficiary, say, wanted to start a business? Could the trust invest in that? Well, that depends upon what the trust says. The trust determines whether the trustee could make a distribution for that. Hypothetically, if the trustee had the discretion to make distributions, the trustee could consider such an investment. There are alternative means to providing funds to a beneficiary, whether it be a direct investment in the beneficiary's business, whether it be a loan, whether it be a distribution. But in any case, the trustee would have to evaluate the appropriateness of the uh, distribution or investment. So hypothetically, the child comes in and wants to start a plumbing business and has a well-developed business plan, well, that sounds like it might be a reasonable opportunity for an investment. But if the child comes in and says, 
well, if I buy X number of lottery tickets, I'm bound to win. Mm-hmm. That's probably not such a good investment for the trust. What about a case I just had, where a case where I'm a trustee, and the parents of the child who's the beneficiary wanted a loan to start a restaurant? Well, it depends. If they were also the grantors of the trust, such a loan may be prohibited, and that would get into really sophisticated tax issues. So that may be a problem. Um, Additionally, the trustee has to just put a cloak over his eyes with respect to the parents of the beneficiaries if they are not beneficiaries themselves. What is in the best interest of the beneficiaries? That's always what controls. Hey, so you mentioned tax. So how, how are trust tax, trusts taxed? Well, trusts are taxed in the exact same manner that individuals are taxed. So in a trust case, it's typically interest, dividends, capital gains, things of that sort. However, trust reaches the maximum tax bracket of 37% at only about $12,000 of taxable income. The distinction between a trust and an individual is that the trust can take a deduction for a distribution to a beneficiary, thereby transferring the tax liability from the trust to the beneficiary. This enables the trust to reduce its taxable income, increasing the taxable income of the beneficiary. However, often there's an overall savings to the family of doing that. And the trustee has to be aware of the ability to do that and has to evaluate the extent to which it is appropriate to do that to save the family tax. And also, um, I understand that if it's a revocable trust, then it's uh, then all the income is taxed to the grantor? Even, yeah, so even. revocable trust is not recognized as a separate taxpayer. Uh, it's a little involved, but the other types of trusts are called simple trusts and complex mm-hmm. trusts. They are typically irrevocable trusts. But any trust that is revocable by the donor or creator of the trust is taxed back to that individual in the same manner as if they own the securities themselves. So so that won't be taxed at the higher rates that our trusts are subject to. That's good. Good. And um, so you talked a little bit about some of the tough distribution uh, decisions that trustees have to make. Um, how, how are they supposed to make up their, their mind on, on whether to make a distribution? Is it their own, well, their own uh, judgment? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, you know, in the sense that their own being, their own personal views, mm-hmm. no, absolutely not. First, the trustee has to look at the trust. What does the trust say? Some trusts have what we call the HEMS standard, H-E-M-S, Health Education, Maintenance, and Support. Now, this, in theory, is supposed to be an objective standard so that if you looked at a distribution request, it would either fall within one of those categories or it would not fit within, fit within the pigeonholes, as I like to call it. However, that standard, in my opinion, is not very objective. Say the child wants to come in and needs money for educational purposes. Well, it's a four-year college. Okay, that seems to fit. Well, it's a trip around the world, and the child says it's going to be the education of a lifetime. I'm sure it will be. Maybe it doesn't fit (laughs) within that standard. So you have to look at the trust. So if the trust has the HEMS Health Education Maintenance Support Standard, it's easier to make the decision. The more difficult decision is if the trustee has the absolute discretion 
to make distribution decisions, which is often granted to the trustee because it's a much, much more flexible approach and it works much better because none of us have a crystal ball and can see what's coming down the road. In the situation where you have that, the trustee, again, getting back to your initial question, doesn't make the decision based on his or her personal views. The trustee needs to think, what would the creator of the trust have wanted the trustee to do, but for the fact that the creator is not there to ask any longer? The way that I handle this situation is I ask my clients to define what is appropriate. And I go through a variety of circumstances and actually have them prepare a memo and send it to me, which discusses various issues. I'll go through just a couple. Yeah. One issue is divorce. If a child is going through a divorce, should a distribution be made to him or her to assist in that process? Clients are on one side of the fence or the other. Mm -hmm. Nobody is on the fence on this one. Uh -huh. Absolutely, positively, the distribution should be made. This is when the child needs the help the most. Yeah. The other side of the fence says, absolutely, positively not. They shouldn't have gotten married if they're getting divorced. So mm -hmm. no way. Mm -hmm. So in answering that question, the client has provided me insight into how that issue should be properly dealt with. Another one that's a bit more common than, than the divorce situation is the house situation. Mm -hmm. Child comes in and wants to buy a $400,000 house, and there's a couple of million bucks in the trust, so it's not going to use up every last dime of the trust. Do you give the child the 400000 for the house? Do you give the child 80000 typically the down payment on a $400,000 home? Do you give the child half the down payment? How is your opinion different if this is a second home, not a primary residence? So in answering questions like those and all the other questions that are in that memo, that comes back to me, it gives me a good insight as to what issues are important to the creators of the trust. So they're painting the picture for me. So I understand, okay, is this an important issue or a non-important issue? How open should the spigot be for this type of request? The decisions can be very difficult to make, but you have to put yourself in the shoes of the creator of the trust. You're just the person communicating the answers. So how many trustees out there actually have memoranda like this from the, from the grantors? I have no idea, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is very few. I, I am very careful on not only the distribution decisions, but also the distribution process. Whenever I'm appointed as a trustee, a letter goes out to all the beneficiaries explaining the administration of the trust. If you want to request a distribution, this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. You don't call me up and say, Joe, I need ten grand for this, because that's a non-starter. The distribution request has to be in writing. It has to have backup documentation. If it's to pay an invoice, it has to be at least a month before the invoice is due. Those are typically tuition situations. Mm -hmm. So if you set out the ground rules for the beneficiaries so they understand what they need to do, then you set out in that very same letter how I'm going to make a decision. This is what the trust says. I'm going to use that information. And then I am also, though it will not be revealed to the beneficiaries, beneficiaries will review my notes and any memorandum that the client have sent to me to help me make distributions. 
So if you explain all of that to the beneficiaries, they're less likely to come with you, come to you with the crazy request. And they'll understand, hopefully, a little bit better if you turn them down or start asking for more information. Oh, well, that's doubtful. But oh, okay. <laughs> in, in theory, one would like to suggest that, but in practice. Um, but what I, what I have found is that it reduces substantially the number of crazy requests. And then you have a lot of situations where you don't even need a request. Suppose it's a husband and wife, husband passes, and you meet with the wife and you say, how much do you need to run the house on a monthly basis? You need X number of dollars per month? Great. That's going to be wired to you. It's not as if a request needs to be made. Mm -hmm. So you just establish those things to make your life easier and the beneficiary's life easier. Your job is to serve the beneficiaries. How often do you review those arrangements? Uh, t uh, regular distribution arrangements? Yeah. At least annually. Mm -hmm. To evaluate if the circumstances have changed. Yeah. Now, as a CPA, we're often assisting with the tax work, so I would know if any of the numbers changed mm -hmm. from that lens. Very good. So uh, I think that's a, a great summary of all the all the things a trustee has to do and think about. And uh, thank you very much. In the next podcast, we'll talk about how to choose a, or select a trustee for your trust. Thank you very much for your time, Ari. I look forward to continuing. Thank you for listening to the Ask Harry podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have questions about estate planning, you can find answers at askharry.info. And if you don't find your answer there, you can post a question and I will respond to it. You can also subscribe and listen to future episodes on iTunes.